The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is my friend and fellow contributor, Horatio Clare, whose new book is called Heavy Light, A Journey Through Madness, Mania and Healing. Welcome, Horatio. Very early on in this book, on page one, in fact, I think, you say, I went mad. And that's, you know, a lot of people don't like to use that terminology there's you know people talk about having issues with mental health and it's seen sometimes as stigmatizing was there a deliberate choice on your part to use that sort of blunt vocabulary yes it was absolutely it's both personal and political I do feel that the road to very defined vocabulary is also a very difficult one it descends from the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders um, of the United States which itself is tied in with this fallacious 1950s, 60s theory that there is a chemical imbalance in the brain. That was debunked, um, but psychiatry um, still depends on it to a certain extent in that the popular perception is that if there's something wrong with you, you can take a pill and fix it. I didn't find that that was helpful at all. And I'm much more of the view that we all exist on a continuum between mad and sane. And I think madness is an acceptable and normal part of every life. I think uh, insomnia is a form of madness. I think those moments of anxiety and panic, which we all know are forms of normal and perfectly reasonable madness, I suppose. So when I went to the extreme end of the spectrum, that seemed to me to be the right way to describe it. Can you describe a bit what the extreme end of the spectrum that you went through, as you talk about in the first part of your book, consisted of? How did it manifest itself? It began in hypermania, which is racing thoughts and um, sort of unable to sleep and too much energy. And it progresses into grandiose ideas. And then it moves into delusion, which was the full spectrum of, of madness, really. I became convinced I was part of a grand scheme of world-saving paranoia, really, in which I was a benign agent acting alongside benign but mighty forces. The governments of the world, you see, Sam, had united under threat, possibly, of alien retaliation if we didn't change our ways. And the drones over Gatwick, which you'll remember, which remained slightly obscure, became part of my bank of evidence, which I built up. And so delusion is a sort of language in which you work desperately hard to make a system in which everything is okay. So as your actual life, your sanity, your relationships, your finances are all going out the window, and my father was very ill, I came up with this astonishingly, not just cathartic, but balming double world in which everything would be okay if I could just keep going and pull it all together. So it's like living in a a, a sort of in, in some ways, slightly cliched. I mean, a lot of these delusions are very similar, 
about um, MI6. People worry, you know, have things about the royal family. Aliens is very normal. It's a great balm and a release, really, to live in, in that parallel reality. So that was where it went to. Why do you think these delusions are similar? I asked a psychiatrist this, and he said, because back in the day, it would have been the king and the queen, people who had power over you. And now it's either celebrity or the royal family or MI6. The idea, I think, that we all grow up with, that there are larger forces than us um, to whom we're subject and in whose scheme normally we either do not figure or play tiny, insignificant roles. Um, but in, in delusion and mania, all those things become exaggerated. And I think you're looking for reassurance, really. I think it would be wonderful to be fully known, wouldn't it? To have perfect surveillance on you in some ways, which understood you to your very core, is a deeply reassuring idea. So it's a kind of sort of grand patriarchal narrative in which there is something higher well, I guess like God, that knows you and uh, and because knows you, forgives you. One of the things that those of us who, who probably haven't experienced delusion in, in that quite extreme way, sort of starting curious to me is, you obviously, as you describe it, because, you know, people, including your partner, Rebecca, were sort of trying to get you help, were trying to put you into treatment or, or at least encourage you to seek treatment or take medication or whatever. And... You, as you describe it, you became very good at giving them the answers that would, if you like, keep you free to continue and persist in your delusions. That implies a certain awareness on your own part that these things were delusional, or at least that other people didn't share them. I mean, I'm wondering how, how self-conscious one is when one goes through that. I mean, how much do you know, if I say this stuff, people will know that there's something wrong? Yes, it was interesting in that there was clearly, uh, my sense was that what I was doing, that these delusions were more powerful, really, um, than my hold on reality. At the same time, I could see that there was an argument for going to see doctors, but I was so convinced that uh, what I needed to do was to stay free and to keep doing it, that I essentially said well I, I sort of talked my way, way out each time um, and there is an argument I think for uh, and the social worker who I interviewed who had who sectioned me I went back and talked to said you know nuttiness is is fine I'm quite keen on it actually as a social worker it's important that we're allowed to have whatever crackpot beliefs we wish the problem comes obviously when those might lead you to harm yourself or other people and so I felt I was not just defending crackpot beliefs, but actually involved in them. And therefore, what I had to do was say the things that would get them all off my back and, and, and let me carry on with my crazy scheme. And I was going to say, you're, you're a writer. And one of the, the I, th I think, I mean, it's fair to say it's funny because you treat it as funny. In the, but one of the delusions you had was a classic writer's delusion. You became convinced that signed first editions of your work were going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah so I was working towards an end point you're always working towards an end point the end point would be that you were sane and that it was fine and that it was all over um but the end point in the delusions was you know world peace breaks out um all the nations unite 
Brexit at the time, which was uh, slightly preying on my mind, uh, and other peoples would be cancelled. We would unite in one world and go forward into peace, harmony, and mind-to-mind communication. At which point, my copies of something of his art, Walking to Lübeck with J.S. Bach, would, to those in the know, become extraordinarily valuable. So I signed a lot of them and left them in a box on the street outside my flat saying, help yourself. Uh, there's one nice coda in which I thought that nobody picked one up, but apparently Amy Liptrot's mother did uh, and, and left some money, which obviously got taken. Um, but she's become a reader since. So there you are, Sam. <laughs> World peace, no, one reader, yes. Now, you described the experience of being on a section and going to a mental health ward. I mean, as you were sort of starting to come back and write this story, revisiting that and revisiting the other people on the ward that did you did you kind of worry at various points like I'm either oversharing in the sense that you were you were worried that you were going to be digging into your own privacy but also that the other people who you encounter who are very vividly drawn are going to feel vulnerable or exposed or invaded by their appearance in the book I didn't worry about my own privacy in that I having long written travel and first person narrative and non-fiction it doesn't bother me really I think if you're going to do it and you have to take what comes with it so that was fine other people yes I absolutely did and um, we went through quite a careful process both of checking with people who were featured in it significantly and also of disguising those who weren't and so yes there, there is a careful process there And it was really interesting because, of course, my first feeling is that as writers, our job is to put down the world around us and to tell people about it. Otherwise, what are we here for? And then there has been, and you'll have noticed it growing too, over the last few years, a real concern about what it is okay to expose about other people versus, you know, their right uh, not to be exposed, their right to have a say in how they're portrayed versus the writers, which seems to be underlying and fundamental right, to write um, with freedom and and honesty. So yes, it was a really interesting lawyering of the manuscript in which the the concern was almost less for the people who I portrayed in that that's done, I think, straight and honestly and compassionately, but in terms of disguising them so that somebody else couldn't say, hey, that's you, and think less of them as a result. So yeah, we really did think about it. Is that a lawyering of the manuscript rather than a... Consultation. Yeah, the the publishers, um, and it's happened to me a couple of times. Uh, they chat in windows, have a, a lawyer, and they go through it absolutely carefully, and they save me in down to the sea and ships from making complete howler. And uh, they were very careful and sensitive with this, and they are thinking both about your right to say uh, what you saw, and very clearly about the right of subjects not to be exposed in ways that they wouldn't wish to be. Now, when you were in the mental health ward, you talk about, you know, this rather kind of obviously panicky experience of knowing that you can't get out and of not, you know, wanting to say I'm sane and knowing that was the one thing that would guarantee you, you know, a longer stay. I mean, how do you think that setup kind of can or should be changed? It's really hard. I mean, the fact that you're there tells you that there's something has gone seriously wrong and that that's very salutary. The problem is how those things are treated and whether or not the treatment that you're forced to take effectively embeds that condition in you. 
and that you're never allowed to be off medication in some way and that you're likely to cycle between different medications. And I was quickly pretty scared of all that. So I took the antipsychotics that were given on the first night deliberately and then I think on the third night by mistake fairly happily um, and they really worked. Absence of um, from, from being away from my family, being out of the narrative, being somewhere where there was no hiding and no ambiguity plus the pills were really helpful it just drained the swirl of madness out of me like a bath um, being cracked open it, it was really quite quick and and three they said I presented as sane in about two days in about four or five you know I I was back although not without uncertainty and shakiness um and all the beginning of, of a long road back to recovery. But I was fairly adamant that I didn't want to take the pills. And so I agreed to take them really as a condition of release. And then as soon as I could, I binned them. And I've never really taken them since. I've never have taken them since. How we manage it is the key and crucial question, isn't it? And we know that there are better models. There are absolutely better models. The people in there, when I went back to do creative writing classes a year later, said, what we want is talking therapy. They were offered CBT, which is very useful for going forward, I think. But what they really wanted was to talk about where they'd come from. They wanted the kind of expensive and effective therapy that I was able to afford and that they were unable to access. And until we're able to address people in those positions with those tools and give them those options, we're always in some sense going to be in a self-perpetuating system. So I think it's tremendously hard and I don't blame the system, but the system is deeply flawed. A very startling moment in it. You, you, it's the first time you see your consultant psychiatrist. He says, look, we've got three drugs we can give you. Pick one, any one. Yeah, they prescribe by trial and error, by side effect. The fact is that we don't know. We know some of the effects of the these medications on the brain. Others remain entirely mysterious. It is not known why lithium, which was one of the ones I was offered, actually works. They can't x-ray or scan your brain in all of its different dimensions and all the different interconnections that it makes in any useful way. So these things work, but their mechanisms are often mysterious and their side effects are multiple and, and ferocious. So in a way, the clinician was being honest and he was saying, I don't know which one of these will have the least poor effect on you, but um, have a pick and, and take it away which also put the responsibility on me. So I chose the one aripiprazole, which seemed by the information sheets to be the quickest working and the easiest to come off. And although I found it bizarrely uh, numbing in some ways and kind of hyper-making in others and very quickly came off it, it makes a huge amount of money. It's, um, it's known as a Abilify in the United States. It's a billion, billion dollar drug. And it's supposed to be better than others, the fact is, though, that uh, psychiatrists told me that a lot of marketing money is spent and a lot of research money isn't spent, and that when drugs become unprofitable, they're pulled off the market whether they're working or not. So there are serious questions about the drug industry uh, and its role in this, because after all, uh, if it could make the perfect drug, it would. But given that they're imperfect, uh, the priority is to make money out of them, and psychiatry certainly helps with that. The one drug you were very, very keen not to take, I mean, all the way through, was lithium. You say, you know, absolutely not. A concern you have, you say, as a writer, you were worried, I think you used the line, you know, it will kill my muse. Do you, 
I mean, or how much do you buy into the idea that's much mythologized, I think, that, you know, the sort of brink of madness is something that's particularly bound up with creativity and being a writer? In many ways, I don't buy it. I think Jeanette Winterson's, Winterson is right when she says in Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal that madness isn't the end of the line, it's the beginning. And it's not about the necess necessary binding between uh, creativity and madness, but rather that creativity is the thing that frees you from madness. So I definitely hang to those truths. Um, I know lithium, uh, people have found it incredibly helpful, although there is a lot of research against it. So you'll find people who say it saved their lives and others, uh, you know, because it, it, it also attacks the body. And if you come off it, uh, which about half of users do, it can be catastrophic. So it's a bit of a one-way ticket in some ways, and it can be a one-way ticket to a good place for many people. I just didn't feel that it was for me, and I'm cowardly. I, I didn't want to risk a journey which I knew would involve me coming off it prematurely uh, and, and possibly disastrous consequences. So in answer to your question, I, I think creativity in many ways is the antidote to madness. And of course, as we, you know, as we began the discussion talking about different kinds of madness, there are joyful, batty, balmy, nutty, associative sorts of madness, which are entirely benign and without which a poet wouldn't sit down and spend a life ar arranging words in different orders on a page. Although I believe Geoffrey Hill did use lithium, um, so the two aren't mutually exclusive. Yes, you do. I mean, there's an incredible vividness to the passages when you describe your manic episodes. When you're sort of revisiting them to write about them, can you sort of inhabit fully the consciousness that was experiencing them? And not inhabit fully, Sam, but I definitely recalled it all. I mean, it was, it, it was very vivid and it did imprint itself. It, it was very easy to write down hard emotionally because you're looking at what you did all the time. But technically, not difficult because like any journey, I suppose, um, and it's, I, know, I know it's a bit of a hippie phrase, but like an actual physical journey to a, a foreign country, it was very vivid, very immediate, full of detail. My main problem was not wanting to bore the reader with too much nuttiness and at the same time involve them in, in this sort of scheme and the excitement and the exhilaration of what was happening. And also looked at from side to side, it, 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 you know, it is really quite funny. I mean, the fact that they had a lunatic, this poor hotel medial in the Val de Fassa, circling the, the building every night, checking for bombs. <laughs> I know, at least they were very safe. Yes, you say, you say that. Now, when, when you, um, you know, you say it was quite quick, this like water draining from Bath, this process of the delusions leaving you. Can you kind of feel that happening in the sense that is there a moment when you suddenly go, ah, actually, this guy doesn't really work for the special forces or there really aren't bombs or those weren't aliens? No, it was very odd. So you wake up in the morning having had the night on heavy antipsychotic and you're uh, awash with sweat. And outside there are porter cabins stacked up and sort of builders moving between them. And they look like military age men. Uh, and and a, a week ago, even three days ago, you would have said, there you go. Uh, yet more observers, more watchers, more people involved in the grand scheme of things. But they just look like builders. And so you go to breakfast and you're aware that you're in a mental hospital and that, that um, in some ways there are no more excuses and the game is kind of over. 
And then it took about three or four days, I suppose, where I would, bits of it would come back and you'd think, but how did I, how do you account for that? So were these drones at Gatwick then just drones at Gatwick? And then you'd read books and you'd think, not only does this not have any significance for me in this nutty scheme, this doesn't actually have any significance at all. And so you were sort of left rather strangely washed up on the shore of your delusions. And so, no, I suppose it's like anything. It's like a mood changing when one moves from melancholic to uh, happier. It was like that. It was like, a, it was like a cloud drifting. It just seemed to drift away. And Robert Lowell, who had what was then diagnosed as manic depression and was hospitalised for it a lot, he had that, has this haunting line in, um, I think it's might be Waking in the Blue, he's where he says, cured, I was frizzled, stale and small. Did you have that sense of diminishment? That's a wonderful line, isn't it? Frizzled, stale and small. Yes, that would make a lot of sense. Absolutely. I remember trying to give up smoking years ago and my girlfriend and I went out for a walk in the Chilterns and I said, it's like being on day release from a hospital. And oddly enough, it really is like that. It's, um, if you, I know you probably have quit smoking. Uh, when you go and you're sort of shaky and a bit tender and yes, frizzled, definitely. And drifting around Wakefield, looking at the magpies in the park in your old coat, which your friend sweetly loaded you into the hospital with. And you feel you're absolutely one of Larkin's kind of uh, hair-eyed tremblers in the park. And you are. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I suppose it's reassuring that um, there's, there is a definitely a trodden way back. But, yeah, the diminishment is, is very good. The sort of second half of the book is, I mean, it's autobiographical, but it's more reportorial, where you're looking into, you know, you start to investigate that this question of, do the drugs work? Do they work long term? And to a certain extent, at least to begin with, seems to me you're following your own instinct, aren't you? And your instinct is to say there's got to be another way. How much, if you become aware that you haven't been in your right mind, did you trust those instincts? Did you find yourself second guessing them and saying, this could be my delusion coming back? Or were you confident that this was trustworthy? It's a very different feeling. Delusion and speculation and being uncertain are like different countries and very little joins them. Of course, I asked myself again and again about the validity of the judgment and what sort of strength you attach to your own narrative. But a narrative of F. Scott Fitzgerald unbroken series of successful gestures, you know, or in my case, <laughs> unbroken series of disastrous gestures, nonetheless adds up to a personality and a story. And when out of the hospital and clearly uh, sane, uh, and it's Lacan as well, isn't it? Identity is in the eye of the other. So when you find yourself uh, as sane and everybody accepts you as sane, um, then you have to start thinking, okay, so we know the world is also mad. And is this not a fairly mad situation to be in when you're being told to take random drugs who, which don't work, whose side effects are established? And so then I took the way out we would all take, which is I started reading and researching and looking up and looking at these pills and thinking to what extent do I trust these convictions and how much can I find out about different narratives um, which might tell me what it is I should really do in this situation. So it's not that I didn't look back, I definitely look back, but it was more about looking forward. When did you start to conceive of it as a book? In the mental hospital, 
when I started coming down really quite quickly. Clearly the idea, uh, and Sam, I'd be interested in yours on this. You know, my therapist said to me, if I took away your writing, if you were no longer a writer, would you still be? <laughs> and I, I struggled still with that one, but uh, clearly in there, it was an identity that I, I grabbed to. And so I started keeping a diary very quickly and getting it down. And then I wrote very quickly after coming out, I wrote a broadcast about it uh, for from my own correspondent, from our home correspondent. And you can hear how kind of shaky I was at the time. But an uh, email came immediately saying, will you write this as a book? And so there was no doubt that that's what it would be. And the funny thing is then, as you will know, you live half in the book you're writing and half in the reality you're writing about. But that's a very familiar and, and happy place, really. So the writing and researching of the book um, absolutely formed our part of the story of it, uh, which was the, the coming back together. Yeah, there's a lot of material there, but broadly, what understanding did you come to about the question of drugs and medication for mental illness? Because you yourself have said, you know, just now, that you, know, you think taking this antipsychotic was certainly one of the decisive things that got you back towards sanity. And I know that for instance, you know, when Johan Hari wrote a book that appeared to tell people that antidepressants didn't work, there was a considerable outcry from the psychiatric establishment saying, look, this is a dangerous book to write. Your partner, Rebecca, was worried that this was a dangerous book. Does that, you know, what, what are your feelings around those, those issues? What did you find out? I'm absolutely uh, pro-medication. There is no model um, that I know of that um, suggests that there is no role for medication. It is a formidable crisis buster. It is a lifesaver. We're incredibly lucky to have it. It's very interesting. You know, the, the National Institute of Clinical Health Excellence, NICE guidelines, nowhere say that you should take antidepressants without concomitant counselling, without therapy. We have splintered theory from practice because we're under such pressure and the system is under such pressure. The two need to go together. And the crisis is that in our current extremists, we ignore our own advice and we prescribe because pills really do treat symptoms. And there are times when you really need your symptoms treated. But if you want to address the causes, then it's got to be therapy. So I am um, very pro-medication and I know uh, psychiatrists use it really carefully. And I know psychiatrists who do really see a balance there. And the conversation is changing. And indeed, no doubt the practice will change. As it stands though, millions of us are subject to a fairly industrial process where your symptoms are bad, here, here are the pills, they will take them away. Now you're going to need more pills and they will have side effects. So I can understand where Hari was coming from. And I do think the threshold for prescription, certainly for things like antidepressants is way low. I mean, if you're miserable and trapped, is it that you're miserable and trapped because you're miserable and trapped? Or is there something in your brain that requires a pill? And those questions are not asked. I remember begging for Prozac back in the 90s because I was blue. And the doctor looked at me like I was a complete idiot, which I was, and said, get out, change your circumstances, get yourself together, maybe try getting a job uh, and you'll find you're fine. We would never get that now. And in a way, we've gone slightly backwards in that respect. You talk about something, or your therapist in the book talks about something called the power threat meaning framework. What's that exactly? Because it seems to be the beginnings of an alternative to the very medicalised DSM, you know, drugging up to the gills version of things. 
It's fascinating. So in 2018, um, the British Division of Psychologists, which is a part of the British Psychological Society, published this paper, the Power Threat Meaning Network, Power Threat Meaning Framework. And two of its authors, including Lucy Johnston, uh, who's a psychiatrist, so who's a psychologist, were deeply critical of the entire model of psychiatry. And you can crudely characterize it as a split between fairly radical psychology and psychiatry, in which Johnson accuses psychiatry of, 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 of peddling invalid di diagnosis, entirely descriptive based on the DSM. This is what you look like. This is what you are. And the inference is, here's your pill. It is actually not as crude as that. Many psychiatrists absolutely accept psychology's arguments for treating the biosocial, physical person, the whole person. But they're under a lot of pressure, obviously. The power threat meaning framework is the beginnings, and it's not official British Psychological Society policy, but it is a framework that they promote, is the beginnings of a way of looking at us as on a spectrum, as on a continuum. So rather than saying, what is wrong with you? Answer your bipolar, answer pill. The question would be, what has happened to you? How has power operated in your life? What, how have you felt about that? So what have you done to protect yourself? What have your strategies been, which might include delusion, for example? What meaning do these situations now have for you? And really, how can we help and talk it out and go forward? So it asks questions rather than essentially seeing solutions. It's a different way of thinking about it. It takes more time, of course, which means more money. But I think it's probably the beginning of a way of seeing which will be widely adopted, which is that it's not about the individual, just as it's not about the imbalance in the brain. It's everything around you that has driven you to this point, and it's where you've come from. So we address those, and then we might have some hope. Now, there's a sort of... I don't know, almost a sort of shadow thread behind this book about your relationship with your father. You say early on when he's unwell, you know, there's this one line paragraph, you know, underneath so much of it, this. Is that something you, I don't know, it feels like you keep it very slightly in the background. Yeah, you're right, Sam. Um, and of course, you knew him uh, and he was a huge admirer of yours. He, he was very unwell and... Uh, and you can imagine the effect of me going through this on him really didn't help. But yes, I wrote it in the spirit that he fostered, you know, which was to inquire, to ask questions. Um, when it came to the medical, he was very, um, he was good at sort of doing what he was told. But at the same time, he would always ask questions. Um, and so, yes, there was part of it. But also the fact was that the delusions were a wonderful release in that suddenly he wasn't ill, you know, not in that story. He was going to be fine. And the same thing, there are other stories not told in the book, which the delusions uh, were a complete solution to. So I could see that, you know, what was wonderful about this terrible experience was that when you looked at it hard, there was no mystery at all. It was totally explicable. And it would have been impossible for anybody by my side going through the same things not to feel the same ways. So in a strange way, I guess an experience of madness is also a deeply reassuring experience of normality. Now, your partner, Rebecca, is incredibly long-suffering and to whom you pay great tribute in the book. She's very sceptical of your... If you, it's not, not quite anti-psychiatric, but your, your resistance to medication. I mean, as you say very candidly in the book, you know, for a long time, 
you had come off the antipsychotics and you didn't tell her in order to effect the reconciliation after you were out of after you were out of the mental hospital. How does she feel about the book now, about the the line you've taken? So the problem is, uh, and you're very sweet to push like that, but I actively, I lied. You know, she would say, have you taken your pill? And I would say, yes, I've taken it. And I, I just lied. And, and it turns out that quite a lot of us are in that position of lying to people very close to them about taking medication. And it struck me right at the beginning that this narrative of the chemical imbalance was, is deeply in, ingrained in us. She said it at one point. She says, that, but it, I want it to alter your brain chemistry when I was saying, but it alters your brain chemistry. Uh, and she said, but that's what we want. And so I felt differently about it, having done the research. She feels about the book that, um, well, she's, she's pro the book. Her, her main reservation actually is that she feels it doesn't go far enough in describing the hurt and pain that she went through and that her family went through, my family went through. And I think she's right. I, I made a judgment, which was how far through this, you know, how much do I need to tell the reader versus how much would I need to say to do full justice to the effects of a breakdown? And I made that call. Uh, and I can understand why she thinks the line should have been further over. As an act of expiation? Um, I suppose, yes. I mean, it, it's two things, isn't it? When you're writing about your family, you're also writing to them. and so. I guess she would have wanted a fuller account. I felt that I needed, I aimed to serve the reader first while not deserving the people in it. So everything that happened is there or clearly demarcated there, but it's not there in exhaustive detail. And in a ruthless way, I suppose, at the bottom of it, this is my story. But as you say, the book is dedicated to Rebecca and full of her and I would read bits to her and take it down her reaction verbatim and ran it all by her repeatedly so to that extent it has her approval. Do you hold much up with the idea of writing as therapy I mean you said creativity is the opposite of madness or is a release from it I mean it doesn't necessarily feel to me like this is a book that's been written as a sort of personal therapy it's far too reported and too you know, campaigning for that. But is there an element of that in it? Again, I was thinking of that, of, of why be happy when you could be normal, which I do think is an absolute masterpiece by Winterson. And you can see the balance that actually, you're, this is not written as therapy. This is written as a, as a gripping story that needs to be told. But the side effect of it, and an important one, is hugely therapeutic. And that's where I stand with this one. No, it absolutely wasn't written as therapy. Any, although, Sam, I, I, I suspect we would both say that <laughs> writing for us is, if you took it away, it would be taking away a hugely therapeutic prop. So there's that side of it always. But no, that's not its primary intention. And I do think we do know that writing has... Uh, therapeutic benefits the participation in arts uh, has ther hugely therapeutic benefits but I don't think ideally they don't come first they're a side effect of the creation of art itself or the aspiration to do so well I think that's a good point on which to end Horatio Clare thank you very much indeed
The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.